How are you all? Um, I uh, uh, actually tried as hard as I could to find somebody else, some other veteran, uh, to stand up here in front of you all and talk about their adversity. Um, but everybody said, well, Gil, why don't you talk? And I didn't know what, you know, I, I don't think of myself as having an adverse life. So I was wondering, what are you trying to say? You know? <laughs> and the other thing now, I find that I'm the first one to speak. And, uh, you know, that's always not a good thing. And then right after I speak, I have to sit down and play a guitar, you know, and, and sing and things like that. So, well, we'll t I'm, I'm going to give you my best shot, okay? Um, sometime during the fourth grade, I began to experience feelings of significant anxiety that were not usual for a kid of that age. The feelings got worse as I got older. The anxiety started to be a problem once I entered junior high school and I began to act out. In the ninth grade, I received detention for fighting in school, and my dad moved me to a school in Howard County. Uh, and he worked for that public school system as a supervisor of pupil personnel. Now, his job was to, ironically, um, help other kids. Um, his job was to help kids that were truant, had behavioral problems, and, and he was great at it. I mean, more than great. But what must have been really frustrating for him and my mom was that he couldn't get a handle on me or my problems. And I think that's, you know, common in families, right? You can help everybody else, but, you know. Uh, to demonstrate this, when in 1976, at the age of 56, my dad passed away from colon cancer, uh, my mother received over 100 letters from students and parents that my dad had inspired or helped. It's very heartwarming. At age 16, I remember thinking that my sole goal in life was to get my stomach to stop shaking. My stomach didn't cooperate, neither did I. My mom and dad sent me to a psychiatrist, but I only had three sessions, uh, no medication, uh, no follow-up, and, uh, you know, I just felt frustrated and actually defiant. You know, somebody's telling you, well, you, you know, you, you may have a mental illness, and then you go to somebody that is supposed to, you know, at least diagnose you, right, or something, and you walk away with nothing. But in those days, I, I, I don't think that that was uncommon. I quit high school at the end of the 11th grade and left home. I hitchhiked to Ocean City. Uh, my parents didn't approve of that, but um, they knew the owner of Phillips Crab House uh, at the time, and uh, he got me a job as a, my dad got me a job as a dishwasher. And, uh, um, arranged, uh, you know, for me to help me get a place to live. Uh, my, my parents were desperate to help me. They were scared for me, and they didn't know what to do. 
at the end of my Ocean City summer, I hitchhiked back to uh, Howard County. I didn't tell my parents. In fact, I hadn't, hadn't talked to my parents um, since the middle of the summer. And I didn't tell my parents that I was coming back home. So um, I would stay with a different friend each night. And they would say, Mom, uh, can Gil spend the night? And uh, their mom would say, well, the, you know, is it okay with his parents? You know, of course, the answer to that was, of course, yes, you know. So I, uh, I collected uh, Coke bottles. At the time, we had bottles. Uh, and I collected Coke bottles from uh, people's garages and uh, alongside the road. And, uh, and I, I got a nickel uh, for each uh, uh, each bottle, and then I would turn them in, and I would use the money to shoot pool at uh, Normandy Lanes uh, to get enough money to live on. I was 16. One day, and somebody who would have thought about this would have recognized that this was bound to happen. Uh, one day, one of my friend's parents had the nerve to call my parents to check and see if I actually had permission. <laughs> I was 16 years old, you know. There's no way to treat an adult. <laughs> and, uh, of course, then my parents realized where I was, and uh, the next night they, uh, they came up to Normandy Lanes, and uh, they both had tears in their eyes. And uh, they asked me if I would come home. I did. I still had a lot of anxiety. I agreed to go back to school. Um, and uh, it was difficult being in the, uh, being a grade back, just the way it is when you're you know, a kid. Uh, you don't see the possibilities. You, uh, you, know, see, you see all the negative things. And uh, in that same year, in November, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated. And uh, again, it wasn't that my world was just mad. The whole world was mad. So I quit the uh, 11th grade again and uh, went to work. I got a job at a gas station. Uh, it, uh, it was on the corner of a parking lot in Edmondson Village where there was a, a Hutzler's store. I don't know if any of you remember that we have, used to have Hutzler's and Hoshel Cones, and they were our big, uh, you know, our big department stores. And um, the second night, the owner of the gas station came in, and he took me over to a metal desk, and... Uh, he opened one of the drawers, and he said, you see that revolver? It's loaded, and if any of those damn ends come in and give you a problem, don't be afraid to use it. I'd not been raised, thankfully, with a bias towards any group. And I was shocked to be engaged in violence to be encouraged to be engaged in violence. It wasn't uh, the gun that shocked me. My dad and I hunted. I had owned a gun since I was 11 years old. I liked guns. I didn't like violence. 
and I did not understand discrimination. Doesn't mean I wasn't aware of it, but I had the fortune of being raised by two parents who uh, didn't make that a part of their lives, and uh, and thankfully it wasn't a part of mine. Um, but it scared me. And so at the other end of the parking lot, Hutzler's, uh, was a Navy recruiting trailer. So I went down there uh, and, uh, you know, walked in and said, hey, you know, what's up? And so uh, they gave me some tests, and they said that test-wise I qualified. They said because I was 17, I'd have to get my parents to agree. And, uh, and so I went home, and my parents did. Now, I think they were relieved. Uh, you know, ideally, they would have liked me to have gone back to school, finished high school. Uh, my mom's mantra was, uh, you know, go to school, get an education, get a safe job, and that, you know, that's your life. And uh, I never paid any attention to that. But, um, uh, and I probably couldn't have. Even if I wanted to, I probably couldn't have. But anyway, they agreed, and, and you know, here was a chance for me to get into something that was predictable, right? The Navy was predictable. And I wasn't thinking about the Vietnam War then. I was just thinking about my own issues, and really the Vietnam War wasn't uh, on the map as big as it is, or as big as it, it became to be. So um, I enlisted. So in 1964, uh, in January, I was sent to uh, boot camp at Great Lakes, and um, amazingly, for a person who was a dropout, I excelled. And halfway through boot camp, uh, they told me that I didn't have to take any more tests or anything, that uh, I had already done well, and so the company commander wanted me to spend the rest of my time tutoring people in, the, in our company that... Uh, uh, had fallen behind or weren't quite, you know, m making it uh, academically. And, uh, you know, because there's always a competition for, uh, you, know, you know, the best company, right, get an award and stuff like that. And so, uh, so I did that. And uh, so when it came to uh, the end of uh, boot camp uh, and I had to be assigned a job, uh, they sent me to the person that was in charge of that. And... Um, and they said, listen, because you've excelled here, uh, you, know, you can have anything that you want to do, or you can do anything you want to do. You can have any job description that you want. And uh, I had never thought about what I wanted to be in life, never. Uh, you know, I was just going day by day. And uh, so aviation sounded neat. Had no experience with aviation. I mean, the first plane trip I took was... Uh, from Baltimore uh, to San Francisco. Even when I went to A school at Memphis, I took a train. And uh, so when I was assigned my, uh, my duty station, which was in Guam, uh, I flew to San Francisco, then I flew to Hawaii, where I was there for a few months uh, in, a, in a B school, and then flew on to Guam. So um, I had no idea what it meant working with airplanes. It just sounded cool. And then, um, the, what are you going to do on an airplane? Well, avi aviation electronics technician. 
Now, here's a guy drunk, you know, dropped out of high school twice, right? And believe me, the, the educational requirements of boot camp have nothing to do with academics, you know? So um, I had, I mean, this was just in the dark, but electronics technician sounded great. And so I said, yeah, I'll take that. And so they said, okay. And they sent me to a school in Memphis. It was a 32-week school to give me the academics of electronics. Of course, what was my worst subject and what was I least interested in life? Math. Nobody bothered to check up and see if I had any interest or any aptitude for math. They just sent me. So I got there, and uh, right away I discovered, ooh, this is hard. And, um, and, it, and I did struggle with it, but um, when I was halfway through, I was called into an office, and uh, there were all these officers there, and they, uh, I don't even know if they were reluctant about it. They just said, hey, you're not doing good. You're not doing good in the school, and so, uh, you know, the, the alternative we have is to send you to the fleet, and you can learn to be an electronics technician with on-the-job training. Well, I mean, to get out of school, that sounded like heaven to me. <laughs> even though I had no idea what being on a boat was like either in the Navy. So, um, you know, I said, okay, great. I'll sign up for it. And so uh, I left the office. And, of course, in the Navy, if you're assigned one thing, you have to keep doing that one thing until uh, they give you orders to do something else. Sixteen weeks later, I graduated. I was last in my class, but I graduated. <laughs> It was an honest last. They didn't, believe me, they, they, uh, they did not make any special accommodations for anybody. Uh, while I was in A school, too, I, I, had, the, uh, I had the sense, uh, or I don't even know if it was that, but um, I got my GED. And so the state of Maryland awarded me a GED. And that was kind of empowering uh, because it relieved my parents who, you know, certainly were worried about my educational progress. Um, but I, I think it, 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 I felt vindicated, too. Uh, you know, I felt like I, you know, I wasn't left behind. I think I've gotten past my pages here. <clears throat> Another thing happened to me when I was in A school, and uh, that was I met, yes? What is A school? Uh, um, well, I don't know what A school means, uh, but, well, it's a, it's a hierarchy of schools. So an, an A school is like uh, going to college and getting your BA. And then they have B schools and C schools, and those are like going on to, you know, get uh, more education and more information. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, so anyway, so I, I met this guy in, in, um, in my barracks, and... Uh, he had a guitar that he wanted to sell. And I'd always wanted to play the guitar. My parents had never let me uh, because they thought it was folly and a waste of time. And uh, you know, it was back in the days when uh, 
uh, Ed Sullivan hosted uh, Elvis Presley, and uh, my parents uh, immediately got up and turned off the TV. And uh, I was uh, sanctioned from listening to certain types of music, which now, uh, you know, is... uh, uh, just n- normal elevator background music that everybody listens to, but you know, in, in those days, people thought it was pretty radical, and they didn't want you being influenced by the devil. Um, but anyway, so I told him I'd buy the guitar, and um, you know, the one caveat was that he had to teach me to play it. So he agreed, and I bought the guitar. I've had a guitar with me ever since. I mean, there is not a day in my life since then that I have not owned a guitar and had a guitar and and I didn't I didn't start out with any kind of uh, um, great ability and was I wasn't a natural talent or anything like that but uh, the guitar has helped me through so many hard difficult times um, that uh, I may not be I, I may not be here if it hadn't been for for that. And it just allowed me to uh, express myself. So one of the, in retrospect, one of the issues that I had uh, in growing up was that I didn't get any positive reinforcement. Uh, I didn't get any positive reinforcement from school. I didn't, and that's pretty much the way schools were back then. Uh, I didn't get any positive reinforcement from my parents um, just because they had their own struggles and they... Um, you, you know, they saw life as a chore and a task. And uh, everything was practical. And they couldn't understand, uh, you know, why you would want to get involved in something that wasn't practical. So um, this gave me an opportunity, and, and I took it. After graduation from A school, uh, college, in uh, in the service, uh, I was assigned to B school, so I I went to Hawaii for, I think it was about three months, and then on to Guam. I was assigned to VW-1, which was a a naval air squadron uh, that was originally a weather squadron that tracked typhoons in the Pacific, and and we still did that when we weren't fooling around in the Gulf of Tonkin. And um, we would uh, we flew 16-hour missions in the Gulf of Tonkin, uh, providing rad- radar barrier and security for the fleet. And uh, and then when we weren't doing that, and typhoon season came in, we flew typhoons. So I've flown directly into the through the wall and into the eye of two two typhoons. So um, that. That was pretty exciting, <laughs> to say the least. Um, so I got to experience Guam, the Philippines, Vietnam, Japan, Okinawa, Taiwan. I was 18 years old. I had no clue about the world. I had no clue about myself. And uh, I was in the middle of combat. And. Sadly, that is an experience that a lot of veterans have had. Uh, they, they train you to be fodder on the field in a way. Now, I know that there is a higher calling and a higher purpose. Um, but um, 
I can't say that uh, a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old uh, often has the mental capacity for consent and to really understand what they're getting into. So uh, one, con uh, con one constant in my psychological life to this point was a lack of intention. I would experience negative emotions, uh, not understand them, and as a strategy, I would escape. My escapes were unplanned. I had no goals. Uh, I merely wanted to escape feeling bad. Uh, a hard mission to accomplish when you don't know why you feel the way you feel, and you don't know who you are anyway. The irony of the service for me was that uh, it gave me confidence in myself. Um, I think it had to do something with my inability to escape. In other words, there was nothing I could do. I was in a foreign country. I was on an island most of the time. And uh, wh where would I go if I did try to escape? So I just had to stay there and, and deal with things, whatever they were. And... Uh, and, and that, that turned out to be a good thing for me, although it didn't straighten me out uh, psychologically. That had been, and that has been, uh, that strategy of escape has been my life until I was 52 years old. At 52, uh, I decided that uh, my force of will, my own great personality, was not enough uh, to get me through life. And um, so at the age of 52, I sold everything I had, and I enrolled in WVU, uh, West Virginia University. <clears throat> and uh, two years later, I had a degree in psychology. And that was the first time, I think, in, in my life that I ever did something that I thought about and, uh, and, and wanted to do intuitively because it turned out to be a great fit. I love psychology. I love helping people. I love counseling people. Um, and uh, since then, uh, that has been a real success story uh, for me and in my life. I've been diagnosed with service-related PTSD traumatic brain injury, all related to the service. Um, and uh, a, a probable uh, diagnosis of ADD when I was young. Uh, of course, we didn't have ADD diagnosis then. I have a 70% disability rating from the VA. I only began to recognize, this is, says something to you about mental health, and I, 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 I hope that you all hear this. Um, I only recognized or began to recognize the severity, the severity of, uh, of my psychological, psychological issues four years ago. I've been counseling people as a mental health counselor uh, for 18 years. So, uh, awareness, right? 
we're very, I can be very aware of other people's issues and problems and, you know, and, and, and I can help them and, and, but helping myself, same thing that my, same issue my parents had, right? They didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know what to do with me. I'm still a survivor. A more intentional, a more informed, and certainly a goal-oriented person. But still just a survivor. Thank you. Morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, so I'm kind of like used to this, but I'm not gonna lie, I get nervous every time I give like public speeches. So just want everybody to bear with me, you know, just want everybody to bear with me and just pay attention to this journey because it's really long. <laughs> so I'm going to start off by just letting everybody know my mother had me at like the age of 13 and when she had me things was like really rough for her. You know, she couldn't really go out that much, you know, because she always had to take care of me. And when I was born, it was just me, her, her two sisters and my grandparents and a dog and a cat. So growing up for me, I really didn't have a father in my life. My father was nowhere to be found. When I grew up, they, my mother told me that he literally said he wanted nothing to do with me. So I just left it at that. And I always looked at my, at my grandfather as my father in my life. He's just, he's always been there for me. Even at like, you know, father events at school, like he was like, when I needed somebody to like come get me, he always came and got me. Even when I wanted ice cream, I'd be like, granddad, let's go get ice cream. He'd be like, all right, let's go. Pick me up, put me on his neck, carry me out, the, carry me out the house, go to Rita's and get ice cream. Pick me up from school in his Jaguar, take me home, take me to his house. He's, he's always been like a father to me. But when my, mother, when my mother became of age, she finally decided to move out with live with her boyfriend. And I felt torn from that. Like I didn't like him. I I just felt like he took me away from like the only father I had in my life. And the place we moved to. It was a real, a real known place where a lot of violence and bad things happened. And as I got older, it kind of caught up to me, all the, you know, violence and the attitude change. And I all believe it, was, believe it was because I was bullied because I was darker than a lot of my other friends. And I didn't, I, didn't ever, I never knew my heritage until I honestly hit the age of 12. So I didn't have my father to tell me, you know, it's okay, son, I've been there. This happened to me before, calm down. So the only th way I knew how to react was with violence. I always knew just to you know, protect myself. That's what my granddad used to tell me, always protect yourself. And that's, that was the best thing I ever knew. Like off, as a child, that's all I knew, just to fight and just protect myself. And then I felt like everything changed once I attended the Aberdeen Boys and Girls Club and started attending the summer camp at Intercounty Outreach. I've met a lot of mentors throughout my life, and they've helped me control my anger, my temper, teach me that black is beautiful, and just helped me become the man I'm supposed to be today. Around that age, around the age of 12, I really had to think, I had to think, I had to think like a man and do things as a man, and that's what really made me today. So, <sighs> sorry, get... Story gets harder. So, as I grew up, it became—I believe it was my my junior year in high school. 
I've, high school, my high school years was really kind of rough. It was fun my freshman year. Everybody told me, yeah, oh, yeah, your freshman year is going to be fun. It was fun, but I felt like I really didn't focus on school like that. My grades were good, but they weren't what I really thought it should be. Sophomore year came. That that was that was a hard year. Like, educational-wise, it was hard to focus all the time. I, I'm not, I was punished the whole entire year. I didn't get anything for Christmas. Went to Virginia with my aunt. All I got was clothes and socks. That's literally all I got. <laughs> so then my junior year came. Everything was great. I was like, you know, first quarter grades was great. You know, football season's going good. And what could go wrong? Next thing you know, we got evicted from our home. And that was literally the hardest time of my life. I was homeless from November to July 2nd. I had nowhere to go. The only place I really knew I could go was to my best friend's house. Right when I was home with Cisa, you know, his family said I could come stay with him. I stayed with him for a couple weeks. And then next thing you know, I got put out from there. But it wasn't really my fault because my friend took his dad, his stepdad's car and he went for a ride. So he told me I had to leave. Then after that, I went to go stay with my aunt and have degrees. And I just felt like all my friends were in Aberdeen. And I was just stuck in high degrees. A lot of my friends really didn't drive. I didn't drive. I was just, I, I felt like I had no one. My, fa- my mom, my stepfather, my sister stayed in Edgewood with my stepdad's sister. And it was just, I didn't mind being away from them, but it was just the fact that I just felt really alone. Like I didn't have no friends. I didn't have nowhere to go. I didn't have my own place to stay. I didn't have my own bed. I went through, a, it was a hard time going through that depression. I was depressed for the longest time. I came to school late every day, missed first period or second period. My teacher, my home base teacher always asked me, like, you know, what's going on? Like, usually you're not late and stuff like this. What's going on? And I didn't want to tell him what was happening. But I figured he already knew what was going on with my homeless situation. So I just decided to tell him later on. And my principals found out. They tried to talk to me and stuff like that. But, you know, I, I just pushed everybody away. I didn't, have, I didn't want to talk to no one. That, that's all I did was just go home, go to my aunt's house, eat, sleep, and just watch TV. That was that's all I knew what to do. I was just, I was miserable at that point in my life. But you know, my aunt told me she was like, you know, maybe like you know, start going out more. I kept telling her, nah, I'm okay. I'll just sit in the house. You know, then she was like, you know, maybe you should get a job. I was like, you know, get should like get your own money and stuff like that, so you could just help help yourself get the things that you need. You're a junior. I had a job, so I'm gonna help you out get a job. And the ironic thing was, she's the first. She's the oldest out of her two siblings, and I'm the oldest out of my out of my siblings in my household. The funny thing was, she worked at Taco Bell, and now I'm working at Taco Bell. So I was like, wow, it's weird. You're the oldest. I'm the oldest. We both worked at Taco Bell. So I'm not gonna lie. Talk about working here, there. It helped me out a lot. Cause you know, I didn't, I wasn't in the house a lot. So I, you, my, when I first started there, it was like you know, four hour shifts and stuff like that. But then, like once I got used to everything there, and once they realized I got good at what I'm doing, I asked them, I'm like, you know, can I stay longer? Cause you know, I had friends that worked there too, and I was just, I was, it was, it's fun working there. I enjoyed my time there. But when I came, when I went back home, it was just like. What am I doing? Like I'm, I had nothing to do with my life. You gotta say like I was just I was homeless to July second. I didn't have nowhere to go. I had no one to talk to. 
the only people I really talked to was my mentors, and I I put even then I pushed them away. Didn't talk to them for months. Once I finally went to go see them, they was like, you know, you're supposed to tell us stuff like this. Like, you know, we could have helped you. And I just didn't. To me, I just didn't want to feel like a burden to them. I didn't want to put all that weight on them, all that pressure. Like, I begged one of them. I was like, can I just stay with you? I wanted to stay with her so bad because like everything felt like. I wanted to be a part of that family because everything in there in her family was, you know, great. Her children were fun to be around with. Like, I just enjoyed. I at that point, I enjoyed being around children. When I turned fourteen, I realized, I, you know, I love working with kids because they had a summer camp called Trinity Jones Summer Day Camp. I used to go. I went there ever since I was eight years old. So, ever since then, I realized, like, you know, I have a real strong passion with working with children. Because when I get older, I always wanted to work with kids and make sure that they have they have the, a great life and make sure they didn't grow up how I grew up and had to fight all their life. But unfortunately, I wasn't able to stay with her because she had talked to her cousin, which is also another great mentor to me, which is like another father to me. He told her, she was like, I know you want him to stay with you, but he can't. He has to learn how to get through this on his own. He has to learn how to be a man and figure out the right way. When she told me, he told me that I was kind of confused, but I had talked to him, and he told me a, Bi- a Bible verse. It was Romans eight eighteen. I don't know if anybody's familiar with it, but I'm not. I'm not really familiar with it myself. But all I know is that, basically, in other words, that hard times don't last forever. Even though that that hard time did last forever, which felt like a long, long time, I eventually got through it. July 2nd, we had a house of Havity Grace. My senior year came. My grades were good. It was just like everything was everything was following the plan. I still get bullied every now and then. I'm not going to lie. And, you know, I wasn't, the, wasn't always the best person to be around. Didn't have the best temper. Still going through high school. I had my ups and downs, my roller coasters. But, like I said, I had to think and act like a man at a young age. Having not having my father around, it really hurts. But you know, I, I talk to him every now and then. You know, I get get a few text messages. I met my actually I met my sisters through my mom. I came home one summer, walked in the house. She was like, "Here, Julian, your sister wants to talk to you." I'm like, "My little sister's upstairs. Who wants to talk to me?" She's like, "Your older sister on your dad's side." So I'm looking at her confused. I'm like, "I don't know them. I don't know her. Why are they so eager to talk to me?" We got on the phone. She was just excited to talk to me. Like I'm like, hey, hi, yeah, that's nice, you know. The usual. Like, she's a complete, utter stranger to me. And then I gave my mom the phone back. A week later, they came over. My, well, my older sister and her sister. She's like literally a year older than me. So I found out I had two other brothers, and we're all close of age. So me and my sister sat down on the couch. We talked. I come to find out me and her are exactly alike. Exactly alike. Character-wise, funny, like people like people at my school, they would say, I'm annoying, but in a funny way. And I never understood it. Never understood. It. Well, I kinda did understand it. But then when me when me and my sister had our conversation and we were just talking for hours, I understood why people say I was annoying in a funny way. Because she's exactly like me. Exactly like me. The same nose, same attitude. I cry laughing when she starts talking to me, and she does too. She's about 19. I'm 18. She's 19. My other brother, he's 
17 and my other, their other brother is 16. So we're all close to age. And then I have an 11-year-old sister, no, a 10-year-old sister and a nine-month-year-old brother at home. So my 17-year-old brother was just like, he's autistic. I've never got to meet him or my younger brother. So me just thinking like, wow, my father not just left me, but he left a whole nother family for someone else. And I don't even know, I don't even know who he's with. I don't know, I don't know if he has any other children that have any other siblings. So I just talk to him every now and then, you know, I tell him, I felt like, you know, I owed him, I felt like I owe him this to, you know, tell him, like, you know, the stuff that's going on in my life. Oh, I got a 3.2 GPA, you know, I was awarded this, I was awarded that, I'm going to college. He's never at, not once has he ever took the initiative to text me or even call me to like, you know, hey, what's going on in life? I always had to text him first. Even now, I still have questions, like, you know, to what really happened. Because I've heard so many stories about him and my mom. One of the stories was really believable that my granddad threatened him. And I would, I, I believe it. My granddad, he has a temper too. He has a real big temper. But he never took it out on his family. So I was just like, you know, I don't blame him. His child was 13. And the mother, the story, the story my mother had told me, she was, like I said, she was 13. He was, she told, he went to a party and told everybody he was 18. And a 28-year-old 20, at a party with 13- and 16-year-olds. Now, I'm not going to lie. My mom wasn't even supposed to be at that party. She wasn't. She told me my grandparents had such a tight hold on her. She just she did the same thing she, as I did. She acted out, and she just left out with her friends. And then, you know, I came. So during these trials and tribulations in my life, I just want to tell everybody, you know, keep your head up and just... No matter how dark it is, there's always a brighter day to come. Never let anything hold you back. There's always people there's always people there that want to see you succeed and always will be there for you. You should never push the ones away that you love and that love you. Thank you for listening to my story.